This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Vantanar. Good evening, everyone. I've got a very special guest on the podcast today. Welcome to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. Our guest today is the author of Perceptual Intelligence, and it is Dr. Brian Boxler. What's it? Wachler, is that correct, sir? <laughs> I need to get the surname correct, because my surname is just as tricky as, <laughs> as everyone else's. So uh, apologies for, for the incorrect pronunciation. I'm used to it ever since I was a kid getting slaughtered, but it's uh, Boxer Wachler. Boxer Wachler. Okay. Yeah. I come from a German South African side of things, so we tend to interpret the, the, the meaning or the uh, pronunciation of surnames quite uh, quite differently. I always have a lot of fun and games when people try and pronounce my surname, which is uh, Vantanar, which is a very <laughs> Dutch surname. But if yeah. everybody looks at it, they start doing tongue twists and they call me Wattenar and Wentenar and <laughs> Yeah, all kinds of other weird, wonderful things. So <laughs> apologies for that. So, so we're both used to picking up our names off the ground. Oh, uh, yeah, get yeah, yeah. Slicing and dicing. But you're right. It, yeah. Wachler is a Germanic name. So in Germany or Austria, they would pronounce it to this day, Wachler. Ah, yes. That does as, make as sense. As I've been told. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because the normal uh, Dutch or Germans pronounce the W as a V. Right. So hence the use of the letters in that way. It makes for some interesting interpretations, especially when you come to an English-speaking uh, country and they start looking at the surname. It's like, mm, you know, trying to, you know, marry the two uh, pronunciations up. So, yeah, <laughs> all fun and games. So, Dr. Brian, you wrote your book, Perceptual Intelligence, quite a while ago. And I wanted to find out a bit more about one a bit of background about yourself, why you wrote the book, first of all, and then we start talking about perceptual intelligence and psychology, because that's obviously the main reason why we're here. So can you give people a bit of background about yourself and how the book came about? I'm an eye surgeon here in Los Angeles in Beverly Hills. And I think the natural question in everybody's thinking right now is, what in the world is an eye surgeon doing writing a book about perception? valid question. So first, when, when I was at college at UCLA, I was a psychology and a biology major because I was fascinated about how we think, how we process information, how the brain works. And the real impetus for writing the book didn't occur until way into my career. And as an eye surgeon, one of my specialties that I've pioneered procedures for is an eye condition that can be quite devastating called keratoconus, where the cornea the outer lens or windshield of the eye is bulging out. So imagine like your car, you're driving, but instead of a nice windshield, it starts to get this weakening and protruding. And you can imagine all the distortions it could cause with people's vision, with your ability even to drive a car. So that's mm. kind of what the cornea is doing with this keratoconus eye disease. And in the old days, I used to do cornea transplants and had developed some ways to treat it really minimally invasively. So fast forward, one of my patients, Stephen Holcomb, was the United States bobsled driver and was the best hope for the U.S. winning a gold medal, which they hadn't won in decades. And it was actually dominated by Germany, and the Germans are still very dominant in bobsled. 
And so I had restored his vision. He won a, with a procedure called Holcomb C3R cross-linking, which I named after him. And then we implanted lenses after to restore him to 2020. So he won the gold medal for the U.S. at the Vancouver Olympics in 2010, which was the first time in 62 years. So it was a pretty historic thing. And I was there. It was great with my family to watch that. And then when he was competing in the Sochi Olympics in 2014, I went over there to Russia and I started observing all these things that were happening with Putin because the media was portraying the Olympics and what was happening in one way, but the reality of on the ground was very different in a lot of respects. And so I was really fascinated at that point about how there's this separation at times between reality and perception of what people are observing. And so that was really the impetus for the book at that point. It must have been quite disconcerting to see this, you could say, reality disconnect and quite surreal when you look at what the actual reality of the situation is on the ground and the, you could say, media that's been manipulated in that way, wasn't it? Oh, I mean, for example, and I'm a dog lover. I've grew up with dogs. Actually, it's really funny. Last night, literally, I was showing my I've teenage daughters and my wife. I was showing these old videos. Uh, not, I'm sorry, Super 8 movies when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. <Long time laughs> they're, like, they're like, Dad, what's, what's film? Here's actual <laughs> film. <laughs> so we were watching these old Super 8 movies because I'm such a dog lover. And when we had tons of dogs growing up and showing them the dogs. And when I was a kid, it was great. But one of the things that was happening in Sochi was that there were so many hundreds, if not thousands of stray dogs, and they were just like killing the dogs because they didn't want all these dogs running around the Olympics that they had you know, built. And it, it was very nice. I mean, the Olympics, it was done incredibly well. I do give Putin real high credit for that. But they were killing all these stray dogs, and that wasn't really being covered. It was sort of being whitewashed, some of those atrocities. And then there were these other human rights abuses, too, like anybody who was, you know, trying to protest who were, uh, you know, part of the gay and lesbian community in Russia mm -hmm. were being put in jail. You know, they didn't want anything like that around the Olympics to taint it in any way. And those were just some of the things that were, were just, I think, really bad things that were happening, but it wasn't getting much play in the media. And there was this perception that, you know, Putin was almost a demigod in how he was being presented and presenting himself as well. But I think the reality suggested something different. Now, that's, you could say, very, very clear and direct example of the difference between reality and what people perceive must have been quite eye-opening when you actually experience it on such a visceral level. So how do you get to inspire you to start researching that or actually putting that down pen to paper to understand one, what is the process of perception and what is the process of how people process that information? I actually started keeping a journal and the original concept for the book was going to be my seven days in Sochi. And I had detailed pretty much like everything that happened every day for me. And of course, watching Stephen Holcomb win what ended up being two silver medals because there was a whole Russian 
um, doping scandal. Yeah. So he his two medals in the four man and the two man bobsled got upgraded from bronze to silver. So that was amazing to see that and witness that. And so I, I was just chronicled everything. I was just journaling everything. And then in terms of I always had this real love for psychology, which was going back to college, one of my majors. And so then I started really digging in about our perceptions and doing research on that. And it was really great because it brought me back to a field of study, which I really hadn't touched and tapped into in a really long time. Although Mm -hmm. we use psychology on a daily basis all the time without really ever thinking that it's psychology, but that was a great experience to start doing that deeper dive and trying to unpack this experience that I had. And so the book ended up and I didn't have a book agent or anything like that at the time. I had been an author for uh, medical books, but being an author for a mainstream book like this is like a totally different world. And so the suggestion was that if this was going to be a a book, that's going to be like a mainstream book, you have to expand it beyond just like seven days in Sochi Mm and the analysis And it was almost like using the principles of psychology and the observations and really the premise of perception, which came to develop this term perceptual intelligence, like we have emotional intelligence, different types of intelligence, that there's a perceptual intelligence too in how we perceive and how good are we at separating fantasy from reality. And that's sort of the premise of what the definition of perceptual intelligence is. To explain perception to the layman, how would you break it down? How would you conceptualize it to people so it's actually, you would say, something that they can wrap their heads around? Because there's the very medical and also research-oriented view on perception, and there's the understanding what perception is that people have on a day-to-day basis. So can you just explain that a bit more in detail and just expand on that? Because there's, there's always going to be a bit of a disconnect between the two, but what people understand what the actual reality is. So what is your viewpoint and what that difference is? Well, I think there's lots of different ways we perceive things in terms of touching, feeling, smelling, visual, etc. But I think I'm going to focus on using the sort of explanation of perception with what we're, you know, experiencing in terms of what we're seeing and what Mm -hmm. we're reading from that point of view, uh, because that's where our brain is processing the information, the data that's coming in and then processing it and reacting to it without people most of the time even thinking about it. And so perception, you know, in terms of what we read, what we watch, what we listen to is that one category. And then in terms of the intelligence part of our perception, then we have to really talk about what's an area that's really kind of quickly disappearing from the landscape of our society, which is critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And critical thinking is where you take the information and you consciously evaluate it as to, you know, what could be wrong with the information and opinions we might generate from it and what could be correct about it and looking at both sides to then ideally arrive at the truth of the information that you know came in that we're experiencing. That raises a very interesting question because critical thinking is obviously lauded as a very useful tool. I do agree that critical thinking is a skill that needs to be developed and takes a bit of time to develop and you need to be, you could say, slightly cynical to 
examine information. I think it makes it a bit more difficult, especially if you take the Olympics in Sochi, where you can see how people are being manipulated by misrepresentation of information. Mm -hmm. And when you when you take a look at the fundamentals of psychology, especially if you look, you refer to Cialdini's books, and mm -hmm. gives a lot of the examples of how persuasion is used to sway people's views and understandings of the world. You can very much see that in media and social media, and that sways people's ability to think critically because they relying so much on social media and this constant feed of information. And mm -hmm. I think it does get to a point where the constant stream of information disables your habit of analyzing information and thinking about what it is that you're seeing. Instead, you're just reacting to the information that you see. Mm -hmm. I've got a bit of a, I wouldn't say beef, but I've got a bit of a disenfranchised association with critical thinking because I think critical thinking is something that people need to be reacquainted with as a normal process of analyzing information. Mm -hmm. People can be incredibly accurate in their assessment, but they need to start trusting their own ability to analyze information and make the decisions. And I think so many times that people's ability to assess information gets overridden by their ease of being able to look for information online. And I think that's probably the main driver that I'm getting at. There's such a big reliance on online sources of information that it disables your ability to assess and think through the, the, the information and come to your own conclusion and learn, you know, the skill of being critically thinking and assessing information. You know, you could say it's a bit of a bugbear that I've got. And I think it's also something that I've seen working in cybersecurity is because you have to be very analytical, very methodical, and you have to think through the information quite carefully because information can be very easily misrepresented. Or if you use preconceptions and you base your assessment of the information on preconceptions, you can very easily make a mistake in your perception of, of information, your analysis of information. And that's why I find perceptions so fascinating is because you have to apply a certain amount of cynicism to the information to allow you to question it. And you have to question the information at any given time. When it comes to actual processing of information, what obviously visually, and vision is a, is a core requirement when it comes to processing information, and then you've got your sensory feedback and your input. What other forms of sensory information do people rely on on a day-to-day -day basis to assess and stop perceiving information? Where does the two come in? Because the processing of information is different to the perception of information, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. And I think, to me, the processing is what also involves some of that critical thinking, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I appreciate what you're saying about having a little bug about critical thinking. But I think if we didn't have a concept of evaluating the information, then I think once it comes in and then it gets processed without any cortical analysis, then we're seeing what people a lot of times are doing, which is just immediately reacting like yeah. with the knee-jerk reflex. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because another surprising fact <laughs> well, that you're going to be kind of like, oh my gosh, is, is I actually do a lot of stuff on TikTok now. I mean, I'm in the Gen Z world uh, because of my daughters. I have to blame my daughters, actually. And, you know, develop quite a following 
because of the fact that there is so many, this just can be an example. There's so many people that just immediately react to something that taps into a desire, a want and a need Mm-hmm. out there. And now when we're talking TikTok, there's a lot of people that are teenagers, which is Gen Z, but there's a lot of adults on TikTok too, actually, surprisingly, more and more. And there are videos that will be, let's just take this one concept of teeth whitening. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people want whiter teeth. Great. Nothing wrong with that. There are videos that I will be tagged in by followers that want me to comment if this is real or not in the Gen Z language for any of you parents out there that have teenage kids, I'm going to make you so hip right now with your kids and get so much credibility when you, you see them next time. What Gen Z calls is fake or false. They use the word cap, C-A-P, cap. Okay. So that's cap or that's not cap. So yeah, for you parents listening, you can thank me when your kids go, how did you know that? Like, no, just say, oh, I have my sources. <laughs> just what you can say. But in any case, so let's just take the teeth whitening. Well, there's a viral video. I'll just give you one example. This happens all of the time on TikTok. This is one example. A viral video about a guy rubbing the a banana peel on his teeth and that this is how you can get your teeth whiter. Now, this video went viral, not because it's accurate or truthful, but because whatever algorithm TikTok has, it promoted this video like crazy and has like, you know, let's say millions of views. And so my sort of platform that's developed over the last year is referring and commenting or what's called duetting side by side. These videos as being, you know, cap or not cap, basically. And I have a little blue hat that actually has a little CAP on it that I made. And I'll put the cap on if it's not true. So, but here's an example of, you know, people that didn't take the time to wonder if this is true or not and just accept that rubbing the banana peel on your teeth will make them whiter, which of course is not true. Mm-hmm. But if people would be thinking about it a little more and wondering, is this really accurate? Is this true? Then people wouldn't have false expectations if they're like keeping the banana peels or picking them <laughs> out of the trash and rubbing them on their teeth, expecting their teeth to get whiter. So that's just an example, but it's almost like I'm sort of known as one of the go-to doctors for commenting if videos are true or not, almost being like the critical thinking guy for a lot of health issue, health videos on TikTok. That's really quite fascinating. And I think people are quite addicted to experimentation in certain aspects because it's about a monkey see, monkey do. It's like, well, it can't be true. But it's mm-hmm. also got that morbid fascination as well. If it is true, then it's got to be really cool. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think it's also the other aspect of the ease. The easier something is or perceives it to be, the more believable people think it is. It's because of the, and this goes into the perceptual intelligence part, is it's important for people to recognize that we all bring biases into, yeah. when we wake up, we all have biases for whatever reason. Some are genetic, some are environmental, some are from deficits we're trying to overcompensate and be better or look better. And so if somebody has, in this case, brown teeth and they don't want to spend the money to go to a dentist to get whitening trays or don't want to do the teeth whitening toothpastes, this seems like a really easy do it at home type thing, right? Do it yourself, a DIY because of the need. So there's an emotional component And that's one of the 
things that can literally torpedo our perceptions and percep well, perceptual intelligence um, is recognizing there could be these emotions involved that can really derail us. You've touched on something which I think is quite fascinating because it's also an area which I've been able to see how quickly people are being influenced when they, you know, dealing with security issues in cybersecurity is their assessment of information can be very, very easily influenced by emotions. And one of the other things that I've noticed, especially when it comes to cybersecurity issues, is the ability or trying to multitask. And the split attention causes people to make mistakes. And in the case of cybersecurity, it's a very serious issue because if you make one mistake, it can lead to very, very serious repercussions. Mm -hmm. And the, the amount of data breaches which have happened and the, in certain cases, financial loss because of just that inattention is actually quite real. And it's, it's something that people are being preyed on. So let's dive in a bit more into that aspect of it. What is your view on how perception is influenced and what do you think are all of the factors that can influence people's perception in day-to-day -day life? Genetics is one component, environmental, which I would define as mm -hmm. things that have driven our emotions, upbringing, how we were parented when we were children. Religion is also a big one. And I'll give you an example with religion, for example. So there is a grilled cheese sandwich, a really valuable grilled cheese sandwich. Lance, how much would you pay for like the best grilled cheese sandwich? I'm assuming dollars. you like grilled cheese and you're not <laughs> vegan. So let's just, let's no, just, okay, it, dispose of that. So let's say you like say, grilled cheese. Let's say it's three, four dollars, five dollars, nothing more than that. I mean, it's, if it's something top, top end and you're talking about, you know, dry cured organic farm bacon in between, then yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe push it a bit more. But, you know, unless you're talking about some super aged cheese, that's maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years old, maybe go to maybe... $10, $15, maybe $20. I don't know. Um, so you, I, you keep going up. Yeah. We but the thing is, we get I'm a $20 a, out of your Lance. <laughs> I'm a foodie. You know, if you start okay. talking about food, you know, it's, you know the triple cheese, oyster. a triple cheese, grilled cheese sandwich. $10. Let's <laughs> just go the, for a $10. With black and white truffles. <laughs> ah, see, you've already pushed up my $10. I know. I know. <laughs> okay. Well, this is 100% true. A grilled cheese sandwich was auctioned on eBay for $28,000. Okay. That seems a bit excessive for a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> this wasn't just any grilled cheese, Lance. This grilled cheese sandwich had skillet burns that looked like for the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the woman, the woman in Florida... By the way, do you notice it's always like a Florida woman and Florida man in the headlines? <laughs> <laughs> I love Florida. I'm just kidding everybody in Florida. But but Google Florida man, Florida women if you want to have some fun. I'll probably do the same for California too. So I'm in the same situation on the other coast here being in Los Angeles. But in any case, so this woman had very strong religious beliefs and flipped the sandwich over and saw the Virgin Mary on the skillet burns and felt this was like a divine type of situation mm. and was so moved by it that she put it on eBay. Well, clearly she wasn't the only one because eBay is an auction website. So the price got bid up all the way to 
$28,000 and somebody paid $28,000 for believing that Virgin Mary was represented, truly represented on this grilled cheese sandwich. So that's just an example of one of the biases, what we were talking about on that list yeah. of religion can really bias people. Now, is Virgin Mary really on a grilled cheese sandwich? No, the reality is it's not. And by the way, I might say that there was someone else who was eating Cheetos and pulled a Cheeto out and looked like it was Jesus on the Cheetos or Cheezus, if you prefer. <laughs> but, you know, this is in science, we can actually explain that we are trained as since we're babies to recognize the human face. And so mm -hmm. we see human faces in lots of inanimate objects. Like you've probably looked up in the clouds when you're eating a nice grilled cheese sandwich and looked and maybe, oh, there's, uh, looks like a person's face up there in the clouds, right? This mm -hmm. is a very well-known phenomenon called pareidolia, which is where we're trained from infants to want to see human faces in inanimate objects. So, so that's an example of religion. We have social things that can bias us, and especially with social media, online communities, even outside traditional communities too. You can think of lots of examples of how that's a potentially way to bias people. Politics, political beliefs can definitely obscure what's really the truth and not the truth. And even financial biases, you know, how many times do people fall prey because somebody is selling a, a get rich quick scheme that mm -hmm. ends up in cybersecurity? I'm sure you see this a lot of times oh, yeah. as well as sort of the Trojan horse to get into companies. So those are just some of the other things. And of course, you talked about Robert Cialdini, his book mm -hmm. uh, influences sort of a canon of incredible information and yeah. studies. And one of his concepts is about the herd mentality you know, social proof, et cetera. So those are some of the things. But like even right now on Facebook, moms, if they are sharing on Facebook some parenting techniques, you can have almost like a Facebook mob of moms gang up on, you know, a mom because they disagree and, and shame, you know, her with their parenting. She talked about some example of parenting. So there's a lot of this like herd and mob mentality that's out there now. And that's, I think, one of the most fascinating behaviors that you can see, which I find social media is quite prevalent with, is the ability for somebody to make a statement and the context of the whole discussion gets thrown out of whack very, very quickly. I find that with text-based posts, people lose a lot of the contextual references that you have with a normal conversation. Because sometimes the inflection is missed. Sometimes the context before and after the comment is missed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the context is misunderstood. Restart. Sorry, we had a bit of a internet connection interruption over there. As I was saying, the, the issue that I've got with social media posts, especially text-based posts like Facebook or Twitter because of the flame wars, a lot of the contextual reference in a conversation is missed which is what a lot of people rely on when it comes to a social discussion. It's because the inflection, the tonality, you could say the before and after the conversation is missed. And it's very easy to misinterpret the information based on a singular piece of text because you haven't heard of the context, you haven't heard the tonality of the person's voice, you haven't heard whether they're angry, they're sad, they're happy, or you know what the actual you could say, whole discussion point was. And it's easier for people to make a quick judgment call on a single piece of text than it is to sit and listen to 
the information mm-hmm. and then make a decision because they still have to process the information while they're listening because they have to pay attention. Where if you're skimming through information, you see a piece of text, it's very easy just to respond to a piece of text which jumps out of you. And I've got a so I've got a bit of a beef with social media in that regard is the 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 way that people make mistakes and make or jump to conclusions, which is again a bias. And it's a way that the brain processes information to speed up the processing of information. In general, you can use jumping to conclusions as a way of dealing with gaps of information to then come to conclusions. But the other issue is that you can very easily make the incorrect assumption if you don't have some of the context of the information. I think that's also one of the things that was referred to. Mm-hmm. I think it was Michael Hall and Bob Bodenhammer. I think you mentioned it in your book. They were talking about the frame which determines perception. And so I would... I just wanted to find out what your view is on that. What do you th- the, what do you see as is your take on that that part of their view on on perception? Well, and it also ties into Cialdini because he also describes how people take these shortcuts because it's a lot less work to just take the shortcut mm-hmm. and look to like what other people are doing, and that's the frame of reference for a certain discussion. And instead of somebody taking the time to wonder if, you know, we have all those people that are right, that have taken a certain position on a topic, it's just easier to say, well, if a lot of people are thinking about it, then they're probably right. Mm. Cause we've got a lot of people thinking about it. And that's also like the, the concept of social proof yeah. that he talks about too. But again, if, if somebody was thinking more along the lines of weighing both sides, maybe taking some time to research and see, let me give you another example. Are you a coffee drinker? I love coffee. Yeah, I'm a big coffee okay. drinker. Okay. So have you heard of this one coffee called Kopi Luwak? Yeah. It was okay. in Bucket List, in the movie Bucket List. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this goes for maybe like $100 a cup. And so you know about it, but for everybody who's listening, I'll explain. So this is a coffee that's very expensive because it comes from Indonesia. And the story is that these special cat-like animals called civet cats or civets will eat the coffee beans. Do you know this? You know the story behind yeah, it? Yeah. Okay. So they eat the coffee beans and the, or the coffee cherries. The beans are in the cherries yeah. and goes through them, but the beans come out in their poo undigested. Well, the story, the lore is that these civet cats have this uncanny ability to pick the very best coffee cherries off of the plant or at least eat them off the ground and pick the best ones to eat and therefore we're going to rely on these cats innate ability to pick the best beans and somebody has the job and i've been to indonesia and i've seen it somebody has the job (laughs) that job that job job. (laughs) to pick out the beans and they clean them of course and those are the coffee beans that are these highly valued coffee beans that might be worth a good fraction of Bitcoin at this point. Now, the reality is I've had the coffee there and it's good coffee. It absolutely, it's good coffee, but is it worth 10 times, a hundred times more than a regular cup of coffee? No, no way. There's just no way. It's not that it's good coffee, but there's lots of good coffee. And in my opinion, it's not 
in a league of its own. Mm. But the perception and the story, because that's an amazing story, right? Yeah. It persuades people. It's a marketing story. And marketing also can use a lot of these, you know, persuasion techniques that, you know, we talked about and Cialdini talks mm. about. But it's just, again, how, depending on the frame of reference for somebody, instead of researching and maybe taking some time to think, well, is it really worth this amount? Especially if they start really going down that rabbit hole and spending a lot of money on those beans, is it really worth it? And that's what people need to take a step back and evaluate. But it could be an easy way to do a shortcut too. <laughs> yeah. And not even evaluate and spend a lot of money. Yeah. One of the things I've become quite fascinated with psychology and started looking into it. And my view is that the only way that you really change somebody's perception or change your own perception is by changing the context of the information that they're looking at. And that is my take on it. What, is, what are your thoughts on that? I think context is huge. Source is huge. Source is really, really big. There was a book, Purple Cow by Seth Godin, mm -hmm. and he talked about how some people, if they're recommending something, some are basically more credible than others. And not to toot my wife's horn, but her opinions are very respected by her friends. So if she's going to recommend something, she's a really credible source. Mm. Whereas somebody else recommending the same thing credibility wise and friends may not have that same credibility. So it's taken with less weight importance. Yeah. Weight. Yeah. yeah. So I think source is really important. If you've got the same information could be hundred percent accurate, but coming from two different sources can be perceived and, and as you said, weighted very differently. Mm. I think it lies also in track record when it comes to sources with your wife as an example if she's historically been really very good in providing information that's referenced that's accurate that people trust and again it ties into trust and rapport somebody trusts mm -hmm. that person when they say something friends will pay attention because there's a historical track record of quality or good information which makes it a bit easier and that relies again on the social proof because it's somebody of their trust and respect, which means the weight of their information is determined as more valuable than somebody that they've never met. Conversely, you can have the same information repeated by two different people. And now what you're doing is you're confirming information by having two sources of people say exactly the same thing. You increase the value of the information because now two people have said the same thing and that's ties into pattern recognition in the brain the mm -hmm. brain is very very quick on identifying patterns and when you have the same pattern repeated it's very quick on recognizing the pattern repetition and then assessing that information because now what it's done it's it's something unusual because if you have one piece of information then another piece of information it doesn't mean anything to you unless you're looking for the information but if you have a piece of information that's repeated that's something that the brain keys in because of the novelty factor and because the brain heavily relies on pattern recognition as part of its, you could say, processing on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's uh, another way where repetition and social proof is used very effectively because the information is repeated through media, but it's also repeated by a number of people. So now what it does, it increases the importance and the value of the information. And that's also how a lot of social media manipulation happens and I think it's probably also a good example of Sochi is where Putin misrepresented information he could manipulate it 
because you could control the media by repeating it enough exactly. times. Yeah. It's a good way of showing how that can shift people's perceptions. Again, it's, it comes down to how people's perceptions have changed through using certain principles in psychology and thinking and understanding basic principles of it all. And I think talking about even historically, there's just so many case examples of this happening, like even on a large, large scale too. Back before we knew that the earth was round, everybody thought the earth was flat. Mm. And if you're growing up in that era and everybody around you is saying the earth is flat, you and I, Lance, are going to be probably like, hmm, I guess the earth's flat. Okay, everyone's <laughs> saying it. I guess it must be true. Yeah. And of course, we know it's not true, although there is a small but very vocal group of people called the Flat Earthers yeah. that believe that the Earth is still flat. Yeah. I, I listened to an interview. I was interviewed by uh, a podcast, and the podcast was called I've Got a Theory. And he had a, mm -hmm. a guy on there talking about flat Earth, and it was fascinating to listen the justification that came out of the theories that come out. Mm -hmm. And it also makes you wonder how people go down that route. And that's really interesting behavioral aspect to look into uh, and to think about. But it's also quite scary how people can be very easily talk themselves into a situation and then self-believe that. And right. that's certain aspects very scary because it means that a lot of people you know, can literally talk themselves into a situation. And again, referring to Cialdini's work, the, the research that he'd done with some of the war veterans uh, in the prisoner war camps where they were talking about how the, the prisoners were asked to initially just write down an essay stating various things about the United States and just the fact that they started an essay meant that they could refer back to the information and start manipulating people or the prison of war prisoners because they were quoting the information that was written down. Now, again, mm -hmm. that comes down to the fact that once a person's made that statement, it's seen as a factual statement and it can't be disputed. Now that's being used back at them to manipulate their perception and to mm -hmm. start changing how people think and see and perceive information. And that's the other interesting thing is to see how people's perceptions can change by using a process like that. Mm -hmm. And it's quite disturbing in certain aspects that something as simple as a written statement can be used to change people's beliefs about what they think is true. And that's something that's come through in a lot of, you could say, police statements and reports, specifically in heavy interrogations, where interrogations techniques have come out as being quite suspect. Now, torture is obviously seen as a very, very inefficient means of of getting accurate information out because it's the information is misrepresented because of the pressure that people are put under. And it's very interesting to see how people will do anything just to solve a problem or to get themselves out of a very sticky situation because it solves an emotional pain point. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting in a way that it means that people are very fluid in how they can develop their beliefs. But it's also quite scary to think that how people's belief systems can change so dramatically to the point that they're not recognizable anymore to friends and family in certain aspects. Well, in the book, there's a chapter about cults as well. Mm. And that's where somebody's beliefs are in response to typically isolation. Usually it's people who move into a new school, a new community, new city, and they're isolated and they have this like want of being accepted and being loved and cults know this they're almost master practitioners of psychological manipulation and they will 
give people what they want, what they're lacking, what they need. And when you talk about unrecognizable, one of my friend's dads, Ari Galper, Marvin Galper, he's a psychologist, and he his specialty was going in with kind of the troops, quote unquote, to rescue parents' kids out of the cults mm -hmm. and take them. And he would have to deprogram them because the kids were believing, you know, things that were just not logical, but they were essentially brainwashed yeah. in such a strong way. And so to bring back, you know, the, the loved ones, you know, children again to who they used, who they were before they were taken in by the cult. So yeah, some of these things can be very powerful and very traumatic to a family and just tear relationships apart and really have a very bad effect on people's lives, you know, have gone to the extreme. Mm. There's something else that you mentioned in your book, which I found quite an interesting take on things. You you were talking about mental models. Can you explain that a bit more to the, the listeners and just go into that a bit more and just tell people what mental models are and how it, it functions within perceptual intelligence? Sure. And actually, uh, before I get into that, I was just thinking of something when we were talking about social media, too, mm -hmm. and it's so pervasive. I thought I'd just mention this one example. I'm looking at it on my phone here. It's a video that has over 15 million views on TikTok. And you're going to kind of wonder, is this real that so many people watched and liked this video? By the way, this video has over 2.5 million likes, meaning at, at minimum of 2.5 million people liked, agreed with what this video was about. And basically, this guy is talking about how essentially we live in a simulation, like we live in the matrix, and everything around us is a simulation. Nothing is real. The only thing that's real is chewing gum. <laughs> and he's very serious and very passionate and very persuasive in how he's describing this theory of his. And that what everybody needs to do is chew a piece of chewing gum every seven years because gum is real and gum stays in your stomach for seven years. And that's how you can make sure that I don't even really know what the point at the end of the video was. I don't remember exactly. But like that's why you need to have gum every seven years because it lasts in your stomach and gum is real. Okay. And this is a yeah. And this is a video that went ballistic viral. And so, again, you know who's the type of person that might subscribe to this? And of course, by the way, just for the record, everybody, gum does not stay in your stomach for seven years. So if you're telling your kids that, please don't tell your kids that anymore. It passes through just like anything else. So yeah. That, that's not true. But is somebody like maybe into conspiracy theories and this dovetails into that mm -hmm. potentially like, you know, like there's a type of person that's probably going to want to believe this information. They're already subscribed or partially subscribed to some of these concepts. And so that might be the type of person that's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to like spread it. I'm going to rewatch it. And whatever the algorithm is that determines whether something goes viral, like clearly this thing hit all the, the buttons on the algorithm yeah. to make it go viral. I think another example of that is the misrepresentation that 5G towers cause COVID or causes your health issues, or it's part of the reason why the pandemic happened. I mean, the absolute dramatic misinformation that comes with that statement is just something which angered me when I first heard about it, especially 
the original person or I think it was somebody came out with an original statement, somebody that supposedly works in telecoms in the United Kingdom for one of the mobile phone providers. And he was supposedly saying, oh, no, 5G causes all of your health issues and all kinds of other rubbish. And I think this is part of the reason why I find this whole subject of perception so interesting, because there was somebody with a form of authority because they were former executive had worked at a mobile phone company. They're misrepresenting information with enough reference to science Mm-hmm. which makes it believable. And this is where you could say authority comes into the whole scheme of things because somebody is seen as a authority figure. It overrides people's ability to critically assess information. Mm-hmm. And it means that they don't think that, okay, is this really true? And sit down and think about it. And I think it's also because of the lack of critical assessment and actually just taking pause and thinking through the information. Does this really make sense? How true is the statement? And because it's easier just to act and react on the information, and then there were a bunch of idiots that went and set fire to 5G towers. It's like, really? It's, mm. It was you know a completely falsified piece of information that caused damage and a number of people just took up a reaction to it. I mean, it angers me in certain aspects that people are so willing to believe things without re-evaluating the information. But it's, as you said, it's very easy to believe it when you've got multiple points of reference coming at you and you're not really required to think about it and assess it. And I think probably ties into the topic that I was talking about earlier about mental models, because I see mental models more of structures of information when it comes to knowledge that you've built up and using that reference of information to assess what you're thinking about. So in my case, it's cybersecurity, technology, psychology, and also because I'm very interested in health for my own reasons. I spend a lot of time on researching health, nutrition, food, and also meditation, because all of these things are important to me, but those are my mental models that I built up that I then use to assess information and to determine whether something is true or not. But there's certain principles to mental models. I think Charlie Munger is a very big fan of having mm-hmm. mental models. So mm-hmm. what's your view on it? And, and tell us a bit more about mental models and your your side of things on that. I think mental models is defined you know, probably most commonly is an explanation of someone's thought process uh, about how something works in the real world. Mm -hmm. So taking how somebody's thinking and seeing if there's pattern recognition to come up with a cohesive explanation to explain certain types of behaviors or expected outcomes as well. And basically, I think a lot of people do this also without even thinking just subconsciously that they're just trying to make sense of something that's going on Mm. and try to find a pattern and a predictive pattern. Yeah. I think it's a very accurate statement because it's, it's easier to look for patterns because it's in essence what the brain relies on for, for majority of it processing, because it's easier to pick out a pattern. It's an easier way of then to assess the information because you're using it as a repetitive reference. And it certainly makes for some very interesting topics of conversations. The, other thing I found quite interesting in your book is that you've got a whole assessment in the rear part of it. And Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell me a bit more about how you 
develop that and why you came up with that with that assessment how did you build it out to a point where you think okay this is a really solid way of actually assessing it and, and tell people how they can actually use that as a way of improving their perceptual intelligence well, I think one thing that would be interesting is taking the assessment before you read the book and then take it again after mm -hmm. and then see how you do. And at the end, I give an explanation for various answers that were possible answers and the correct answer. Okay. But it really is the crystallization of all the chapters. It's each chapter is represented in this assessment at the end. And I just, I think that it's helpful for people like studying in a class and then you take the test at the end. So you see how you do mm -hmm. and you see how much knowledge you retained and if you were able to execute. So I think that's what this is about. And it gives real world examples. I'll just tell you the first question. You know, you're sitting in a Starbucks enjoying your coffee. Oh, this is perfect for you, Lance. <laughs> you're, you're getting your Kopi yeah. Luwak. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot to say the whole fun thing about that Kopi Luwak story is it's known as cat poop coffee. <sighs> yes. Yes. I forgot about that. So that's, it's, that's the vernacular on the street. So in any case, so you're sitting in your Starbucks, Lance, you're enjoying your cat poop coffee and a beautiful woman or a handsome guy hands you some pamphlets and tells you that you have an opportunity to achieve bliss by attending a local gathering run by his or her scholar friend mm -hmm. whom she dubs as a genius. You, a strike up a conversation, review the pamphlets, and attend the gathering out of curiosity. B, ask the person out on a date. C, politely say, no, thank you. I don't subscribe to your religion. Or D, tell this person to bugger off and call a cop. <laughs> now, this is something that, you know, certainly some of us may have had an experience with. Mm -hmm. And it may not be exactly in the coffee shop, but, you know, where we get approached by things, it, it this happens online all the time where we're approached by people touting some amazing information that could be life-changing and, you know, not even uh, about religion. I mean, in your world, financial. Yeah. So I think if we take the spirit of that question, we can apply it to things that we are exposed to constantly on a daily basis, mm -hmm. especially with email and social media. Yeah. And I think it's the interesting aspect of it is when somebody hands you a pamphlet or a piece of information, you're much more obliged to engage with them because of the reciprocity aspect of it. Yeah. And again, <laughs> yes. And you know, you feel more Going back to our old friend Chaldini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I love his work. Is uh, you know, he actually wrote a blurb? He wrote a blurb for the book, actually for my book, Perception Until. I'm really honored to have her write a little that's bit. That's fantastic. For it. That's, yeah, that's really, a lot. yeah, that's, that's really good. I mean, I've, I've read through the book from, from beginning to end. I'm still, you know, processing a lot of the notes that I've taken on, but I found a lot of things very comforting in certain aspects to read because it, it confirms a, a lot of things that I've been thinking about, my, my personal viewpoints on it. And I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book and I thought the, the questions are something that uh, everybody should definitely work through because it, it certainly gives you something to think about. And it's certainly something that's going to have a big, I think, a, a big difference in your day-to-day -day assessment and, and your perception on life. 
So I think it's a book well worth reading and well worth rereading, actually. It's not just a, a single read. And there's a lot of nuggets in there that can be taken out of it. So I think from that aspect, it's a really fantastic book. And congratulate you on producing it. In a way, I'm, I'm certainly a bit jealous because it definitely lies in my ballpark when it comes to a lot of the things that I've been thinking about and researching. But I was incredibly fascinated reading through a lot of the information, and there was, certainly was a good educational experience for me. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. So tell people a bit more about how they can get in contact with you or learn a bit more about perceptual intelligence, apart from the fact that you're bit of a demigod on uh, TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Instagram too. <laughs> but I would say if people want to take a look at the book, it's really available everywhere you get books. Yeah. Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, lots of bookstores. There's an audio book that I actually narrated myself, mm -hmm. which was really fun to do. So if you like audio books, it's on audio book too. Oh, that's good. And you also, I think it was mentioned in the book, you created a treatment for the eye condition that you also mentioned. Is that available worldwide or is that just available in the U.S.? It's really just available here, mm -hmm. the Holcomb C3R cross-linking. So if people have keratoconus, our website for keratoconus, um, which describes it and a lot of other treatments for keratoconus that can avoid cornea transplants is the keratoconusinserts.com. That's where all that information is housed. Okay, good. What I'll do is I'll make a collection of all of the links uh, and some of the notes and any kind of other references that you've got and I'll uh, share them in the, in the bio for the podcast episode. But I certainly do appreciate your time and thank you very much for you know, being on the podcast and for uh, sharing your knowledge and insight. It was a pleasure, Lance. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Dr. Brian. Have a very good day. Okay, you as well. Thanks. Bye. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.